It's the first Sunday of the month. We're in the Psalms. We are at Psalm 6. So let's get right to it. If you're able, would you please stand out of reverence for, this, uh, for the reading of God's Word. Uh, this is uh, Psalm chapter 6. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul is greatly troubled, but you, O Lord, how long? Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there is no remembrance of you. In Shoal, who will give you praise? I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench, drench my couch with my weeping. My eyes wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. Depart from me, all you workers of evil, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. And all my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. I think if I had asked most of, my, most of my non-Christian friends or people that I hang out with outside the church, if I asked them what, what enlightenment meant, it would be more, they would have more of like an Eastern view of what enlightenment is. It's our culture surrounding us generally thinks of enlightenment in, like this, that the, more, the holier you get uh, or the more enlightened you get, the more you have an increasing sense of holiness. <laughs> and yet, um, at our community group, just last Friday night, we were talking about this great irony, this great irony in the Christian life that really, if you pay attention, uh, the holier, the more sanctified you get, the greater your sense of sin increases. Uh, and whenever I think about that or that, that irony, I always think about the story of a, of a guy named David Brainerd, who was a guy back in the, in the first great awakening in the 1700s, and while he was a minister, um, and while, while several others in his generation were engaging in the slave trade, he was refusing prominent pulpits in order to carry out mission work to the Native Americans. He was going out and sharing the gospel. Uh, in, in, in really hard conditions. He left all the comforts of society behind uh, and all of the, all of the comforts and, and all of the applause that he could have had. And instead, he dedicated himself to evangelism and to sharing the mission uh, and to sharing the gospel with Native Americans. And in the midst of that, he went through a ton of hardships. He contracted what they used to call consumption, which we now think is probably tuberculosis. Uh, and he wrote a diary he kept a diary of all this. And the thing about his diary that's most striking that people comment on is that in the middle of him describing his life and all the hardships he was suffering, uh, everything that he had foregone, just the, the, the links of death to self that he had voluntarily taken on in order to bring the mission or to bring the message to the Native Americans, all riddled throughout that diary are these long laments for his personal grievous sin that he just couldn't get away from. Now, why is that? How is a guy that was obviously so dedicated 
to the mission who is obviously being sanctified by every means necessary, by every means known to man. Uh, why was this diary riddled with all these this self-examination of sin? And, and I had heard this description once in another context where it was talking about like uh, our lives being like a dirty windshield. And that when your windshield is super dirty, you don't really even notice when the bugs hit it. But if you clean it, all of a sudden, every bug that hits that windshield, you notice. And it's kind of the same way. The more sanctified we get, the more closer we get to God, the more we're able to see each bug smash against our window in the chaos and sin of our lives. And when commentators are reading this passage of, of, of Scripture, it's amazing. They're, 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 they almost become prophetic in trying to assign uh, a life situation that David must have written this psalm in. Maybe it was Saul and the enemies of Saul surrounding him. Maybe it was surrounding his sin with Bathsheba. Maybe it was during the rebellion of his son Absalom that David wrote this song. Uh, but the thing is, it doesn't say. There's nowhere in this psalm that attaches it to any particular life experience of David. But what it does say, what it does say, and I, 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 I lament not putting the, um, the scripture, uh, the, the, the psalm heading on this. Usually, I put the psalm headings in the worship guide when we read this, but today I I didn't, or this week I didn't do it, and I wish I had because what's, there's something really important in that heading, and what it, the important thing is it says, to the choir master. And what that tells us is, this was a song of lament, or a song of penitential, a song of repentance that, that all of God's people would sing together in corporate worship. So whatever it might have been in the life of David, we don't know, but what it became what it became in the life of Israel, in the life of the church now, is a public prayer, a public lament. And what that means is that this is talking about all of us. This is talking about all of us and our experience with sin, our experience in the world. Uh, it's not a prayer for the exceptional circumstance, really, but it's a common prayer of our common life. I think that this is a prayer for life under the curse for the enlightened soul who has come to understand that the more holiness there is, the clearer our sin becomes. And so the first thing this teaches us, really, the first thing, the first important thing that this teaches us is it shows us what sin is really like. It shows us what sin is really like. That's the first thing. I was trying to think this week of the sickest that I've ever, ever, ever been. And I was having a hard time thinking of when I've been really, really sick. But there was one time in seminary during finals week uh, when I, I came down with the flu. And not just flu, but it was, it, was, it was legitimate man flu. I was cold and hot and cranky and tired and weak and couldn't get out of bed. Uh, had uh, hot flashes and chills and was just re was so sick with the flu that I was literally stuck in bed. 
uh, I was languishing in bed, as it were, and for two weeks. And then after that, it turned into bronchitis, where I became weak and couldn't breathe. Uh, and was having just trouble breathing and coughing and coughing up awful phlegm. Uh, and that was the sickest I've ever been. But even that is nothing compared to some of the sicknesses that I've seen others go through. I've seen others go through cancer. I've seen others go through uh, other awful, really, really devastating sicknesses where body parts wasting away, shutting down, etc. And one, why do, I, why do I mention all that? Because one of, the, one of the big debates over this psalm is whether this is talking about, this is someone lamenting over a bodily illness or whether this is someone lamenting uh, and repenting over sin and the anguish of sin. For example, in, in Depending on how you read it, you could go either way. It talk, talks about the body languishing, wasting away, consumption, outer weakness. On verse 2, the bones are troubled. Verse 6, he's bedridden. His eye wastes away. In Hebrew, the eye was really like a symbol of health. Uh, calling out in verse 4 and 5 to save from death. And yet in the same breath, he's talking that it's really his soul that is languishing. His soul is troubled. He talks about all of his foes, his enemies. Uh, and I think the clincher is verse 1. The first thing he says, rebuke me not in your anger, discipline me not in your wrath. And so sin is definitely in the picture. And so I think the answer, really the answer to this, whether it was it's physical sickness, is this languishing over sin, uh, I think the answer is kind of both. And what I mean by that is, Physical sickness is being used as a metaphor for spiritual sickness or sin. In other words, it's teaching us that whatever, what, what we can physically see disease doing to the body, sin does the same thing to our souls, even though we can't see it. When we think about God's revelation and how God has shown us truth, we talk about the relationship between general revelation or creation how God has created the world, and also special revelation, uh, things about, uh, which talks about salvation and God's plan of salvation in the world. And one of the important things to understand about those two and how they work together is that they do work together. Without the foundation of general revelation, we would never be able to understand special revelation at all. For example, Jesus' parables. If we didn't have land and plants and sun and rain and farming, we would never understand Jesus' parables that use all those things about creation to speak to us the spiritual truths that he's teaching in these parables, right? Get that? And so the two really work together. I think it actually goes deeper than that. I think God created the physical world in a particular ways to transmit truth to us that's then unlocked by that special revelation. Why, for example, why is the sun so bright you can't look at it? Why is it at the same time the giver of all life, and yet if you stand under it unexposed without any covering, you will wither and die? Why does the spider web capture its prey in a web? Why does it slowly wrap it up? Why does it slowly suck the juices, life juices out of its prey? I think God's teaching us things in that creation. Teaching us about sin, about God's holiness, about our predicament. And I think that extends 
to sickness and to death. And so the same, just like physical illness wreaks havoc and destroys the body in the same way sin is an illness, a chronic illness that hits our souls in the same way. But we can't see it. So the physical model is there to help us understand what's going on that we can't see. That changes our perception about sin, or at least it should. You know, if I cracked open, we, we have communion every week. I always ask the communion people to get really good wine because it's the only ounce of wine that I get all week, so I'd like it to be really, really good wine. So if I, if I grab that bottle of whatever it is, 1947 Puy Fusé or whatever our budget allows us to have, and I brought it out all chilled and I put it on that table right there and, I, and, and, and with it the bottle would be glistening and the promise of the taste and, the, and, and oh, just the promise of pleasure and sensation and beauty. Everybody in this room would be like, yes, pour me a glass. But if I then told you, well, I've also taken a 500cc millimeter of tuberculosis and pumped it into that bottle. You still want some? You might say no. You might say no. And that's kind of how sin works. It presents itself as beautiful. It presents itself as fulfilling. It presents itself in it, and it, it gives a promise of something delightful. But when we take it in, it starts to destroy starts to wreak havoc and poke holes and damage our soul in the same way that physical disease damages our body. And here's the bad news. In this life, you'll never be able to get over that. It's a chronic disease. In the fall, we will be tempted and we will be caught in sin. It's a chronic illness. However, there is relief from that chronic illness. And that's the second part. The relief from the chronic illness comes from repentance. Now, some commentators say this, this psalm can't be a prayer of repentance because there's no formal confession of sin. There's no formal repentance. Like, for example, Psalm 51 where David is laying out his sin formally asking God for repentance in it. And so they say, this can't be, this can't really be a penitential psalm or a song, a psalm of repentance and asking for forgiveness. However, I think if you look closely, he does do that in this psalm. And that's because the, what is the essence? What is the essence of confession and the essence of repentance is to what? It's to turn away from the sin that we're looking to for relief from the promise of sin and the destruction it's causing us and instead turn to God for relief and healing and restoration. Uh, In the language of martial arts, there's something called tap out. In fact, uh, that phrase tap out has almost become uh, a parable in 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 our modern world for for, for quitting or giving up. Uh, in jiu-jitsu, 
the way you win is you, you, you get a guy in a wrestling hold and you put pressure on, on a joint and you put slow pressure on it until it's about to break and then the guy acknowledges that he's lost the fight by tapping on the other guy's shoulder, right? And that's called tapping out in martial arts. And it means you quit, you give up, you're done. <laughs> All done. <laughs> now, for Americans, we hear the word quit and we like have an aversion to it. We're like, quitting is just bad. We're in, as Americans, you can't quit. You don't quit nothing. Uh, however, quitting isn't always bad, right? Quitting can be a very good thing, especially if you are like seriously engaged in doing the wrong thing. Uh, like languishing in sin. <laughs> and so God, really, that's a great analogy of what God does for his saints. That when we are engaged in willful sin, when we are uh, engaged in seeking relief from the poison bottle, what God will do is he will apply pressure. <laughs> he will apply pressure in, la- in your life to what? To get you to tap out. Listen, Psalm 32 calls that the bridle. What's a bridle? Bridle goes in a horse's mouth. You pull on it. It exerts pressure on the horse and causes the horse to go in a different direction. And the bridle, in a big way, is the only thing, is the one thing practically that separates us from unbelievers. Unbelievers go on chugging from the bottle, oblivious to its adverse effects, oblivious to the trail of destruction behind them. And yet, for believers that have the bridle, God applies that pressure in order to get you to tap out. So really, the first thing that we should do if you feel that pressure from God, if you get to that point of languishing uh, from participating in willful sin, the very first thing we should do is get on our knees and say, hallelujah, praise God that he loves me enough to apply that pressure. Uh, so here, listen, here's the tap out in verse 1. Verse 1, it says, discipline me. It says, don't discipline me in your wrath. That word discipline is an educational word. It's always used in the context of education or learning. And really it's David saying, don't educate me <laughs> In your wrath. What's, what's he learning? Don't do that. <laughs> and then in verse 4, he says, Turn, O Lord, and deliver my life for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there is no remembrance of you, and in Sheol, who will give you praise? There's the tap out when he calls out on God. He turns from what he's seeking relief in, and he turns instead to God to seek relief. Now there's a couple of crazy important things that we learn from that little passage, from this passage. Number one is what does David appeal to when he asks God for forgiveness? What does he appeal to? What's the basis that he asks God to forgive him? Was it, is it his good works? Is it his morning quiet time? Is it his promise to never do that again? Is it his promise to, if you do this for me, God, I promise that I will do this for you? Is he bargaining? Is he trading? Is he offering something to God? No, he's not. He, there's two things he appeals to. Number one is God's steadfast love, which is a special word in Hebrew that means God's promise to be faithful to his covenant. He's saying, God, you have promised to save us. Your covenant 
that you made to our father Abraham says that if we trust in you and believe in your promises, you will save us. And I am appealing to your promise that you will remain faithful to that promise to us. And the second thing he bases it on is God's glory. He doesn't say, Lord, please forgive me so that I can go on and do anything in life. He says, God, forgive me so that you will be glorified. He says, who, if I die and go to the pit, the grave, which really Sheol means in this context, the grave into death, who will praise you? He's counting on God. God holds, uh, God is worthy of being worshipped, deserves to be worshipped. And he's saying, save me so that I can worship you. And in that, enjoy you forever. But here's what's even more amazing. This is what's more amazing. There's another, in Psalm 32 is really similar to this psalm. And, and, and this same thing literally changed my life as a Christian. Uh, he goes on and on in the psalm, lamenting, languishing, weary, moaning, flooding his bed with tears, weeping, grief, weak, laying it all that out. And then he does this abrupt turnaround between verse eight and uh, before in verse seven and in verse eight and nine, all of a sudden he just says straight up, depart from me all you workers of evil, the enemies that he talks about earlier, Satan, sin, death, skeptics, scripture twisters, earth dwellers as Revelation would call them. Depart from me, and then he says, because the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping, the Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. Those are all present tense verbs. What happened? What happened in between verse 7 and verse 8 for David to so confidently assert that God had heard his prayer, had forgiven him, had accepted his prayer, and accepted him? What did David do? That's a trick question. And the answer is, David didn't do anything. He didn't do nothing except rely on God's promises and ask God to forgive him. He didn't promise to do a steady, quiet time in the morning. He didn't promise to do more Bible reading. He didn't promise that he was going to be good. He didn't promise that he was going to give more to charity. He didn't promise nothing. He wasn't bargaining. He was throwing himself on the mercy of the Lord, but also completely confident that God would extend that mercy and forgiveness to him and eradicate his sin and save him from death, that he had accepted his prayer. Why was he so confident in that? That's the last part. The last part is he was so confident in that because although sin in this age is a chronic illness that we will not be able to cure, that doesn't mean it will always be that way. Sin is a chronic illness that will be cured in the next age, and the cure for it is Jesus. The cure for it is Jesus. I have a friend that I was talking to about Christianity and... <clears throat> 
He told me one of the big reasons why he didn't believe and why he didn't become a Christian was because he just wasn't impressed with the crucifixion. He was like, he was like, his reasoning was, he was like, look, if I, if, if, if God came to me and said, hey, I'm going to reward you with the salvation of, of, of all of God's people and you would be exalted into heaven as the ruler over all creation, I'd do the same thing. So I'm not super impressed that Jesus did that. It's one of those like weird moments when you're a Christian and you have like a fuller knowledge and you just, you're like watching someone like crazy blaspheming God into your face and you're like, ah, ah, <laughs> backing up a little bit. <laughs> Uh, so what is he doing? He's just thinking about the physical pain, right? Which is bad. There's a study by Christian physicians like outlining like what happens to you when you're crucified. And when you really think about it, uh, it's bad. That's bad enough. But the reality is that wasn't the worst part. Not by a long shot. However, it's hard for us to wrap our minds around what that hard part really was. Because we're already kind of separated from God. We've never had an exalted forever position. For us to kind of wrap our minds around what it must have been like for the exalted Son of God to be disciplined, for all of the wrath of all sin to be poured out on Him, it's such a crazy distant abstract concept that we're like, yeah, that must be bad, but uh, you just can't wrap your mind around it. It's too big. Sometimes things get so big that they just, they lose their power on us to understand because they're just too big, yeah? Well, here's a way to think about it that I think gives us a little bit better idea about what happened to Jesus and why it's impressive. And that's this, the wrath that we get, the wrath that we experience, that emotional suffering that we experience from excursions into sin is a tiny fragment of what, uh, of God's full wrath. It's the nip of the ringer. It's really God in his mercy allowing us in a controlled environment to experience some of the destructive uh, forces of sin in our spiritual lives so that we will repent. It's a little bit he gives us. It's like an inoculation. It's like a vaccine. When we were kids, when I was kids, my mom, we, I, uh, I'm going to date myself here, uh, we, had one of our, the, the, we had a woman who would do a lot of our laundry and she had a home business in her home because she had been afflicted with polio when she was younger, before there was a polio vaccine. Polio is a virus that attacks your spine and it, and it makes parts of your body shut down. So she had one of her hips and a leg that had completely shut down from contracting polio as she was, when she was a child. This was a devastating illness that racked all through our, 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 throughout the world, and then there was a vaccine developed for it. And what a vaccine does is you vaccinate the person, and a little bit of that dead virus goes in there, and your body then attacks it and, and builds up a defense or, or is able to, to fight it off. And so the wrath that God gives us is just a little nip a little taste, a little inoculation in order to create that response in us through his spirit of repentance. Uh, that's in this life. However, in the next life, it's different. 
when we die, it's different. There's either the full wrath of God, meaning uh, that you are in God's presence with all of your guilt and shame and without any of the covering of Christ upon you. I think that is the torment of hell. Agony. Or, as a believer who's been covered in Christ's righteousness, forgiven sin, no guilt, no shame, in God's presence, no wrath, enjoying Him forever in the beauty and ecstatic uh, reality of His presence. What makes the difference? Why is it that we don't experience the full wrath of God at death? And the only reason is because the wrath that we deserve was poured out upon Jesus on the cross. Jesus quotes Psalm 6 right before he goes uh, on the night that he was betrayed. Jesus quotes John 6 in, 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 in John uh, 12, 27. In the Gospel of John, these Greek speakers come and want to visit him and Somehow Jesus takes that as the signal that the covenant is about to go out to the nations that his crucifixion and suffering are at hand. And he says, now is my soul troubled and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. The soul is troubled. I think he's quoting that, that same section from Psalm 6. So I want you to think for a minute. Think about, just for a minute, the emotional suffering that you experience on your last excursion into sin and how that felt. The sorrow, the remorse, the frustration. The, why the heck did I do that again? Why don't I know better? The self you know, the, the, just the awful feeling. Now, imagine if you could experience all Every one of those moments that you've had throughout the course of your life, but all at one moment. Think about the pressure, the pressure of that emotional suffering. Now take that and multiply it by 14 billion. General rough estimate of all of God's saved people throughout time. And you experience all of that emotional suffering and wrath in the same moment over the course of three hours. You're not impressed by that. You're not impressed by anything. That is what Jesus did for us to give us life. And because he did that, it means that God's wrath is satisfied. We will never have to worry about experiencing God's wrath in the future. Because he did that for us. He endured the shame. He endured the cross. And that's where all David's confidence comes through in that psalm. That's where our confidence comes from. How do we know that when we pray and ask God to forgive us, we are forgiven? How do we know? How can, how can we make those bold statements without like doing some ritual to 
offer up to God as penance, whatever your favorite ritual is? How do we know that we don't need to do any of that, but that at the second of repentance, God is forgiving our sins, that God has, in fact, already forgiven our sins? How is David so confident, and how can we be so confident? Because we know that Jesus went through that for us. God's wrath is satisfied. We never face it. We'll never face judgment. Instead, what we have to look forward to at the coming of the new age isn't terror, but it's peace and joy and being in the beautiful, ecstatic presence of God forever. That's what Jesus bought for us, and that's how he bought it. Amen? Let's pray. Father, most of the time we walk through life like callous and unaware, uh, clueless to the destruction of sin that we so often drink by the gallon. But we thank you, Lord, that even though we are, even though we are sorrowful in that, even though that is a chronic condition in this age, we know that we are forgiven. We're not waiting to be forgiven. We're not waiting to be saved. We're waiting for the ultimate expression of our salvation, but we are not waiting for your judgment on us. We're not waiting for your decision. Your decision was rendered 2,000 years ago on the cross, on Jesus, who endured all the emotional torment of the lifetimes of sin of billions of people all at once. Lord, we don't even have the capacity to understand that. And yet in his capacity as God and man, he was able to absorb all of that sin and endure the full fury of your just wrath to bring justice to us. Lord, help us to remember that. When the enemies accuse us, help us to remember that we can remind them that our sin is paid for and that we belong to you. And when we become despairing, help us to remember, Lord, that no matter what happens in this age, we are covered and protected by you and your promises will hold. As we approach the Lord's table, Lord, help us to remember what the Lord's Supper reminds us of and why you've given it to us so that we can rejoice in our suffering, rejoice in remembrance of the coming age. And we pray all this in Jesus' name.